Hey friends, this week we are in Mark 14, and our passage begins dramatically this way. It was now two days before the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now this is going to set the stage for a dramatic chapter in the unfolding of God's plan for the world costly decisions that will impact history and the world. Now, Holy Week that we've just finished celebrating a couple days ago with Easter tells the week of everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards and everything now that the New Testament refers back to. And I want us to look at four scenes in our passage today from verses 1 to 31. And we're going to look at four costly actions that are going on. Costly meaning something that commands a high price, especially because of its intrinsic value, or something that is made or done at heavy expense or sacrifice. Now, as we get started with all four of these scenes, we can tend to focus on the secondary characters, Mary, Peter, Judas, and the other disciples. Even though what they do is very important to what's happening and what's happening in light of God's unfolding of his plan for redemptive history, Jesus is in all these scenes. And we can look away from him sometimes, and instead we focus on what's being done for him or what's being done to him or around him. Today, I want us to focus in on Christ as we look at the actions of others. So we're going to consider costly love, costly faith, a costly meal, and costly dependence. And I hope and I've prayed so much that you'll be encouraged in your faith as we look at the actions of these other people. And as we look at those actions as a way to point beyond themselves to Christ and his love and his sacrificial actions. So let's begin with number one, costly love. Jesus is anointed at Bethany. Now this takes place actually the weekend of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, as we see in John 12. So it's interesting in Mark's account of what's happening here, verses 3 to 11 actually happen a few days before verses 1 and 2. So let me read for us verses 3 from chapter 14. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, there came a woman, and this was Mary. So Mary comes with a alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard that was very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now John 12 adds a little more detail and that actually she also poured that, um, poured that perfume on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Now you see in the passage that some of the disciples became frustrated and judgmental about this extravagant gesture. Once again, John 12 tells us that the main instigator of this was Judas. And he was basically saying, what a waste. This was like a year's worth of wages. There's more scolding happening about Jesus interacting with people that some thought he shouldn't have. Can you remember some of these other stories? Children, Bartimaeus, the demon-possessed women. And yet in this story, Jesus commends and defends Mary and lifts her up. Now, why does he say 
that Mary's actions would be told throughout the world whenever the gospel was shared. Well, she's preparing Jesus for his burial with her love, devotion, with her worship. So the story has been included in scripture, God's inspired eternal word. And do you remember what John said at the end of his gospel in chapter 21, 25? He said, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. So each story, including this one of Mary, each story included in the Gospels are there for a purpose, to reveal God and his eternal plans in Christ. Now, Focus in on Jesus, who's reclining at the table. He receives not only her action, but her. You know, and often when this passage is taught, it's easy to rush towards what is most precious to you, or what do you need to give up and pour out? And and those are good applications. Our homework actually took us there. But can we see Jesus first in this scene, more than we see Mary's actions or her alabaster jar or her hands or her pouring or wiping? Can we let those things actually woo our eyes beyond them towards Christ Jesus and stay there? See him. He's reclining at the table. He allows Mary to draw near, to perform, uh, to pour this perfume over his head and let it drip down over probably part of his face, his back, his clothes. We don't know what expression was on his face, but we know that he receives it. He doesn't instruct her, correct her, or say, what are you doing? He receives her by his side into his presence. Jesus allows her to touch his body, to impact his very person, And again, he defends her, advocates for her, commends her, and lifts her up in their presence. And for all of us, for all readers of scripture, for all time. You know, this kind of reminded me of the scene that we saw in uh, Mark 9 with the transfiguration. And I wonder, this isn't in the text, but I just wonder if as the disciples were having this verbal scuttle about this good money being wasted as perfume was poured on their master's head. I wonder if similar to that story in the transfiguration, if the father was in heaven ready to say, this is my beloved son, listen to him, look at him. He's worthy of this anointing. This is our costly plan that is unfolding to rescue you, to provide for your forgiveness of sin and allow you to be one with us. Mary is our chosen instrument to prepare the Savior for his burial. I wonder. Jesus was anointed beforehand for his burial. And think about this. Most likely the fragrance of that perfume stayed in his hair, stayed on his clothes as he enters Jerusalem the next day on a donkey. As we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks of our Bible study, as he goes into the temple, as he celebrates the Passover, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, As he is arrested, harassed, interrogated, assaulted, goes before the religious leaders, and Pilate is stripped and flogged. He's been anointed and perfumed. He is fragrant. The soldiers who beat him 
who whipped the flesh off his body and bloodied his head with a thorny crown, were torturing the body and piercing the head of the one who had been anointed with perfume for these very sins. Look at Jesus, the perfumed one, anointed and ready for the week that's in front of him, ready for a violent death, separation from the Father, and all the wrath of sin being placed on him. It's his costly love and obedience that is on display. What do you want to say to Jesus? How do you respond to this? What holds you back if you are feeling held back from drawing near to him? He will not refuse you, sister. No, he wants you to approach with your words, your pain, sins, shame, fears, whatever. He wants to help you believe that he is delighted as you draw near. Next, let's consider costly faith. Judas betrays Jesus. Verse 10 says this, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now we see a little bit later on in Mark 14 how this betrayal unfolded. But here's what I want us to remember, that Judas is being used as God's tool for the son of God's crucifixion. Judas and the religious leaders, they're not in control here. God is, and it's God's plan that is unfolding just as he intended. Now, worshipful love of Jesus and costly faith in him go hand in hand. Think about it. Mary's costly love and worship stands in contrast to Judas's costly faith in himself, in his understanding and scheme. Mary poured out her wealth. Judas greedily sought to secure it. Mary drew near to Jesus as he prepared to suffer. Judas drew away in order to betray him. Mary's hands lovingly worshipped Jesus. Judas's hands jingled those coins. Gaze upon Jesus as he prophesies at this intimate meal, prophesying that someone will betray him. Now, what have you learned as we've been in Mark about the way Jesus speaks, responds, interacts, defends, serves, loves? Remember, his uh, in John uh, 6.38, he said of his father, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So as he's leading this intimate meal with his friends, as he declares that one of them is going to betray him, is his face frightened, angry, pouty, manipulative, passive-aggressive? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say what his countenance was, but from what you've learned about him so far, about his love, character, words, actions, deity, we can safely assume that his countenance was steadfast. There was sorrow and there was trouble there, but he was unshockable. He knew how this was going to go down. Can you imagine it? He planned it. He is creator and Lord. And Judas had been chosen as a tool to be one of the ushers of the path that Jesus would walk down towards his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. 
let's not focus first on how am I betraying Jesus, but why would I want to? Look at Christ. Sister, if you are turned away from Jesus somehow in some way, what is it? Who is it that has captured the affections of your heart? Is it, is he, is she really better than the peace, hope, comfort, forgiveness, holiness, love that Jesus is and that he offers us because of the resurrection? You know, Jesus invites you. Jesus invites me saying, come to me. I am gentle, humble, holy, kind. Draw near to me and let me help you. The mess you are or the mess you feel that you're in isn't too much for Jesus. No. He says, come to me. I will help you. So costly love, costly faith, and thirdly, a costly meal. Jesus celebrates the traditional Passover with costly, eternal, significant changes to the ceremony. And I want to say I'm really thankful for Sinclair Ferguson and Tim Keller and their wisdom on on this passage. So the Passover was a moving, somber ritual for the Israelites. It commemorated God's mercy to them when, from the time when they were slaves in Egypt, trapped in a miserable situation. If you remember the story, if you've not read it yet, you can go back to the Old Testament. God sent a horrible plague of judgment against Egypt in which God's wrath would take one person from every household, Jewish and Egyptian alike. God's holiness and his justice wouldn't allow sin to go unpunished. However, God provided a rescue, an escape for his people. They were to mark the doorway of their house with the blood of a lamb, a sacrificed lamb, as a sign of their faith in God. This signified actually a a sacrifice of life for life. So in every home, there would either be a dead lamb or a dead child. And in this way, God's righteous judgment would pass over those homes and families. They knew that they were only saved on the basis of faith in this substitute sacrifice. So after this pivotal event in Israel's history, they fled Egypt under Moses's leadership and came into their new land. And so every year, the Jews would celebrate these events with the Passover. This is what Jesus and the disciples are doing. So let me just explain quickly what happened at a Passover meal. This is important as we understand, as we want to understand what Jesus is doing and what changes he brings. So first, the meal had to be prepared in a very specific way and celebrated in a very specific way. And the way, um, the way they went about it, it included four points at which the presider, which was generally the head of the family, would hold up four cups of wine, one at a time. And each one of these was a part of the fourfold meaning of Passover. One, rescue from Egypt. Two, freedom from slavery. Three, redemption by God's divine power. And four, renewed relationship with God. Now the third cup for redemption would normally come as the meal was almost done. It was on this cup, the third one, that a new meal was instituted by Jesus. He says really shocking, astonishing things in verses 22 to 25 that from now on, 
his followers or the people of God will celebrate him. He's the new path into eternal rescue, freedom, redemption, and renewed relationship. But did you catch? Jesus didn't finish the meal. The fourth cup, which would signify the end and of the meal and also the hope for a new relationship, Jesus says, I'm not going to enjoy this until you can enjoy it with me in heaven, in the kingdom of God. He says that actually, rather than ending their fellowship, he's extending it to continue more gloriously in the future when they are joined to him, when all followers of him are joined to him in the kingdom of God. Matthew 22 14 to 16 says this, Jesus, uh, well, actually, let me lead into this. Consider Jesus, the Lamb of God, about to be slain, is sitting at the Passover table with them. And he says, Matthew 22, 14, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again enjoy it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What does this mean? That when we are with Christ in heaven and human history has ended as we know it now, we will enjoy the costliest meal of all time. The wedding supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus the bridegroom of the church, the people of God who are called the bride of Christ, we will feast together with Jesus. Listen to Revelation nineteen seven to 9 which tells of this glorious feast that is in front of us. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now listen to this. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Sisters, right now, Jesus is waiting. He's fasting from drinking this final cup until he is joined by us, his bride, for the wedding supper of the Lamb. So when your obedience and your faith, when loving the Lord feels so costly, locate the end of the story where human history is heading, a costly meal which we will enjoy forever with Christ the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, our eternal bridegroom to whom his people are wed forever. Look to him. He is eagerly, earnestly desiring and waiting for us to join him. Now finally, let's consider costly dependence. And this is about Jesus foretelling Peter's sin of self-dependence and denial. Let me read again from Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Jesus said to him, or I'm sorry, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter was basically saying, I don't have it in me, Jesus. I'm not capable of such a shameful sin, Lord. And it says the disciples were all in agreement. They were all agreeing that we could never do this. And that's how our passage this week ends. But we all know that it's not the end of the story. This was a sobering, sad moment in the lives of those men, of those disciples. And you know what? We can take heart in that because they didn't follow Jesus perfectly, and we don't either. I'm excited over the next few weeks as we finish Mark, as we're going to go deeper into understanding what's happened because of Christ's resurrection that enables us not to be self-dependent, but God-dependent. You know, we hear a lot of quotes from Tim Keller. I've, I've mentioned him already in this talk. He's an amazing leader and influencer. He's a man of God. His faith and his uh, teaching ministry have been powerful. But, you know, recently he's been sharing some really humbling lessons that he and his wife, Kathy, have been pondering about what they've been learning since his diagnosis uh, uh, last year with pancreatic cancer. And he shared recently in this talk um, some things that have been hard but freeing for, for the two of them to realize. And they've realized two key things I want to share with you today. One was they've seen how, you know, in the face of a really harsh diagnosis, pancreatic cancer that probably will take his life, they've seen that, first of all, that they didn't realize that they've been trying to create heaven for themselves on earth. Kathy with nice getaways, nice vacations, and Tim's actually acknowledged that his ministry, the next book, the next thing he was going to teach on or write on, these were all ways that they were trying to make heaven for themselves now. The second thing that Tim said that they've realized in the face of this suffering is they've come to see their own unbelief. Uh, The very things that he's taught hundreds of thousands of people He's recognized he has been struggling to believe it himself. Like, does he really believe in the resurrection now that he's facing heaven more quickly than maybe what he was anticipating? And he said something about this that has really been echoing in my mind. He said, you know, I'm not battling cancer most of all, but unbelief. He, in other words, has really humbly recognized that in many ways, Rather than being God-dependent, truth-dependent, he's been self-dependent in certain ways. And I would suspect that all of us, myself included, can resonate with that. We do resonate with that. But in all this, let's again look at Jesus, the betrayed one, the shepherd who is to be struck down as his sheep scatter. Now, why this description? Uh, This is going back to an Old Testament passage that uh, Jesus is quoting here. But why shepherd and not conqueror, warrior, king? Well, perhaps it's because he is not only the Lamb of God, but he's our faithful shepherd who knows 
that we are weak, needy sheep, 100%, 24-7, dependent on him to believe, to worship, to love, to stay true to him until we meet him face to face for that wedding supper. And you know what? Even when we run away and scatter, Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, the anointed, abandoned, and disowned one who is resurrected, victorious king, he is fragrant, steadfast, unwavering, filled and fueled by love for his Father that is now poured down over us. Sisters, I hope you are encouraged and that we can encourage each other to look to Jesus. He receives our devotion and he remembers it. He delights in our love. To look to Jesus, he sees you, knows you, he knows your heart and he knows your temptations and the ways that you and and me too, the way we do give in to betray his love. He's gazing at, gazing at us, not to shame us or disown us, but to woo us back to himself. Look to Jesus. He's the end of the story. And you know what? He knows where all this is going. 2021 and beyond, if we're still here. He knows where all this is going. And you know what? He knows how to get us to that feast that he is waiting to enjoy with us forever. But are you tired, frustrated, weary, maybe just discouraged, tempted to even give up? He knows. He knows specifically and intimately where each of us is at. And you know what? He's inviting us to see him in the midst of our struggle so that we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God, our bridegroom, who always leads us in triumphant procession in Christ and makes known through us everywhere the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of God in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your costly love, for the cross and for the resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus. And when we stray, when we look away, woo us back. Keep us on the path of faithfulness, Jesus. We know that we will be with you. And Lord, help us to locate the end of of the story when we're weary and maybe struggling today. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.